Am I good? Okay. All right, we want to continue on in, uh, just for a few moments today. Uh, in our study we started, uh, we, just, we were talking about some different uh, Bible doctrines, and uh, we dealt with uh, uh, Scripture a little bit, and then um, with dealing with God. And in the last time we were able to do this study, <clears throat> we were talking about some of the perfections of God. Uh, many people refer to them as the attributes of God. Um, Ryrie and several other commentators <clears throat> prefer the word perfections because in each of these things, God is the, the perfect example, the perfectness of these things. When you think of attributes, sometimes we think of, if you think of, of something having several attributes, you feel like it's part of it. So, like, you know, that this deck car has, you know, nice wheels, it has a nice paint job, it has a, a nice stereo. It, each one's a part of the car, it's not the car. Where God's, God's attributes, his perfections, is who he is. So it's not just a part of who he is, it is who he is. It's his, it's his character, his nature. And so they prefer perfection. So we want to talk about uh, a, couple, a couple more of those today, just for, just for a few moments this afternoon. In 1 John, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, it says this. It says, He that loveth not God, uh, he that loveth not, excuse me, knoweth not God, for God is love. So the perfection we want to deal with today um, is the fact that God is love. Now, in the original language, um, the way that that phrase is actually written is the God is love. Uh, there's a definite article there which makes it very specific to the God that we worship and serve. And, um, and in, that, in that idea of God is love, we, we understand that, that uh, God... Um, is love perfected, and and so we want to understand that. And and, and in His love, uh, God God does a cer- some certain things. Uh, God allows Himself to love a sinful man. That's where we get God's grace. The fact that He allows Himself to love sinful man. God's love is is poured into the believer's heart. We see that in Romans chapter five, and uh, and God's love can even be seen sometimes in the trials that we face on the earth as they, as they hope to grow us more. Into believers, but the idea of love is is a difficult thing to define. You know what actually is love? Matter of fact, if you look at a de- dictionary definition, um, it'll tell you that love consists of affection and also correction. So that's not how we actually always look at love. We don't always think of love that way that it, that it consists of affection. We look at it that way, but it also consists of correction. Well, how do, how do we come about that? Well, love seeks the good for the object that's loved. So as a parent, you love your child. So that means you have an affectionate love toward them. You love your child, that they're your child, but you also have a corrective love for them. If they're about to walk out into the street as a young child, you teach them you don't walk out and cross the road till you look both ways and make sure no cars are coming. And if, they start, if a little child starts to run toward the street, what do you do? You correct them, right? You teach them that you don't do it or reach their hand to, to an open fire or whatever the case may be. In correction, why do you correct? You correct in love. So, so if we just even use just the dictionary definition of love, love consists of affection and also correction, uh, we, would, we would see very clearly that that does match up with, with what God is to us. God is love. He, he has a love for us. A love, he loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son to die for us. But also God loves us enough to correct us. See, as a parent, 
I, I could say I love my child, but if I'm unwilling to correct my child, my love really doesn't carry a lot of weight. Because if I truly love them, I'm also willing to correct them in love for their betterment. So I, I, would, I would do things that would, would demonstrate that I love them by correcting them so that they don't make mistakes that will harm them in their life. And so the love comes out that way. Now, what happens is when people hear things like God is love, there's, there's a, there's a uh, thought line um, that, that is prevalent even back in Paul's day, but even to today, uh, a concept called univer, univer, universalism, excuse me, I'm going to get it out yet, which teaches an unbalanced view. Universalism teaches God is love, so certainly God's going to save everybody because God is love. Well, the problem is love is one of the perfections of God, but God is also holy and God is also just. And so those are other perfections of God, and he is perfect in all those. But because of those, we cannot come to the conclusion, and you'll hear this, I, I hear this all the time in, in today's society. Well, a loving God would never condemn people to hell. Well, first of all, God doesn't condemn you to hell. Your fact that you don't accept his gift of his Savior of his, from, his, from the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that's what condemns you to hell, is the fact that you didn't accept the free gift of salvation. But they would say, they, the way they term it always is, well, a loving God wouldn't condemn people to hell. Well, yes, God is loving, but God is also holy, and God is just. And so God's justice and holiness requires that there's a payment for sinful man. And so the payment, of course, was his son that he offers in as a free gift. But that, that's an idea that we still, we, we still seem to hear a lot about today. You'll hear people all the time a lot, when people are trying to talk to them about, about God, you know, condemning people that aren't saved. You'll hear people say all the time, well, God is love, so he's not, he wouldn't condemn people to hell. And, uh, and they use that idea, which comes from universalism. Uh, but the problem is God's perfections don't operate in, the, in a vacuum. God is love is not his only perfection. Because God is so many other things other than love, but he, he, does, he is love as well. And so that's the, that's the concept of, of God is love. Then we come to three of the perfections or attributes of God that probably all of us have heard of at different times because they all start with the same uh, beginning. And that beginning is omni, which means all. And uh, so we have three perfections of God that all start with the, with the what do you call that thing? Before, before the first part, before word prefix. Thank you. Couldn't think. I am not an English major. Okay, a prefix. They all start with the prefix. Maxine knows her English. Uh, they all start with the prefix omni, which means all. And that's omnipotence, omniscience, and um, omnipresence. And so, um, and so we're going to look at those um, today just for a few moments, see what those are all about. So let's start with God's omnipotence. So omnipotence means God is all-powerful. Okay, God is all-powerful. And uh, the word, it's interesting, uh, the word almighty, the word almighty is used in Scripture 56 times, and every single time it refers to God. Interesting. 56 times the word almighty is used in Scripture, and every single one of them is in reference to God. God is all-powerful. 
And, um, and, and so we, we want to understand, and, we, and we, we need to understand as we look through Scripture, we see where God revealed himself as the Almighty God to different people throughout the Scriptures. Uh, verse, Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1, it says, And when Abraham, or when Abram, was 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. And so God revealed himself to Abram as the, what, almighty God. We see that. And then later in the book of Exodus, if we go into Exodus uh, chapter, chapter 6, Exodus chapter 6 and verse 3, we see this. It says, And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob. And, oh, and this is uh, um, Jehovah speaking to Moses. Um, God speaking to Moses, he says, and I, and I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty, but by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. So how did God uh, speak to Moses? He used the name God Almighty. And then on top of that, he's adding in now Jehovah that he wasn't used, that they didn't know him by, but he used the term God Almighty. And then all the way into the New Testament, you can look at um, God, God revealing himself uh, to believers, Second Corinthians, in Second Corinthians chapter six and verse Second uh, Corinthians chapter six and verse eighteen, he says, "And I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters," saith the Lord Almighty. That ties right back to our message today. You shall be my sons and daughters. We talked about the adoption as sons of God this morning, but it's saying, "Saith the Lord God, the Lord Almighty." And then even over into the book of Revelation. So from basically the beginning of Scripture all the way to the end of Scripture, from the book of Genesis with Abram all the way to uh, Revelation with John, Revelation chapter 1 and verse uh, 8. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. And so we, we see God as all-powerful. And so people often talk about, um, are, are there limitations when it comes to God's power? Because that's an interesting question. Uh, are there limitations that maybe even God puts on his power? And, uh, and so we got, we got to look at that. So there are, there are two kind of categories of limitations uh, when it comes to God being all-powerful. Um, there is what's called a natural limitation. These are things that are opposed to his nature. So one of those would be God cannot lie. So God is all powerful, but it would be opposed to God's nature for God to lie. So God cannot lie. So that's a what we call a natural limitation. Then there are self-imposed limitations. Things that God chooses not to do even though he could have done them. So the the, the probably the biggest example of that is God chose not to spare Jesus going to the cross. He could have spared Jesus going to the cross. He's God. He could do whatever he wants. So he could have decided that the solution for the sin of mankind was something else other than his son going to the cross. But he chose not to spare Jesus Christ going to the cross. So that's a self-imposed limitation. So yes, there could be some limitations, but God is all-powerful. And that's why folks also... It's important for us to understand in the scripture, you know, Satan is described as a powerful being. I think, I think many times 
you know, we, we get the cartoonish picture of Satan. You know, we get the, we get the guy in the red suit carrying a pitchfork uh, with the little pointed tail, and that's what we envision, you know, that's, that's Satan, you know, that's the devil. He's the, the guy in the red suit with the pitchfork and the, and the pointed tail. But Satan is a powerful being, and Satan wields a lot of power, which is what makes him dangerous for you and I, because Satan is a powerful foe. That's why I think it's important that Scripture teaches us that, that, um, that you know, we are in a, a, a war, a battle. There's a, there's a battle that's going on with, with, with spiritual forces. And, and I think we, we get some of that description in Scripture to help us understand that Satan is not just the guy in the red suit, that he is a powerful being. And there are demons that he uses to, to go about his business and things like that. And we see that when we talk about, you know, spiritual wickedness and high places and stuff in the, in the Scripture and principalities and powers and all those things, we, under, we, we get to understand that. But what we have to always understand is God is all-powerful. So when the end of time that, that we're living in comes to, to pass, uh, those of us that are, have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are going to be on the side of victory because God is all-powerful. Uh, but in the meantime, we do have a foe, and his, and his name is Satan. But that's God's, that's God's omnipotence. Second, we want to look at just briefly today is God's omnipresence, the fact that God is everywhere present. God is everywhere present. Now, go back into Psalms for just a minute. Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, the psalmist here asks the question about escaping, and this is a psalm of David, escaping from God's presence. Psalm 139 and verse 7, it says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, um, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be the light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. Uh, the darkness and the light are both alike uh, to thee. And so what David asks, so he says basically, uh, as he starts that, whither shall I go from thy spirit? Is there any place I can go? that I can escape the presence of the Lord. And, and it's basically a rhetorical question because David then proceeds to answer it by saying, if I go here, you're there. 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 So he basically answers his own question by, say, by basically coming to the conclusion that no, there is no place that I can go that the Lord's presence is not there. So now for us, for us, um, we have to understand that is not parts and pieces of God. It's not like part of God is here and part of God is over here and part of God is over here. That's not how it works. God is everywhere present. Now, this differs from pantheism. What does pantheism say? Pantheism said, says that God is in everything. That's what pantheism is. So God is, God, God is in this piano. God is in the pew. God is in you. God is in the car. God is in the tree. And so, so God is in everything, and so that's what pantheism says. But this is not, what, this is not pantheism. The problem in, in this ideology is, is it fails to make a distinction between the creator and the creation. See, to say that, that, to say that God is, is in this piano puts the creator on the same plane as the creation, the piano. 
but that's not how it works. And so, and so that's why that's a faulty mentality. But we have to understand but, that God's presence is everywhere. Now, think about that for a moment. If God's presence is every, everywhere, that can be both a comfort and very disconcerting. <laughs> because it can be a comfort when I'm going through a difficult time to know that God's presence is always with me. No matter where I go, God is there. And I can turn to him and look for him and reach out for him, and he's there. That's a comfort. But it can also be disconcerting because as David questioned in Psalm 139, where can I go to get away from God? Oh, you can't. <laughs> and so God knows all. And God, and God sees everything that I do. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden. When they, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what did they try to do? They tried to what? Hide themselves from the presence of God. That's what the scripture tells us. Did that work? No, because <laughs> God is everywhere. And so they, they tried to hide themselves from the presence of God, but they were not able to hide themselves from the presence of God. So when it comes to that aspect of it, it can be a little disconcerting that God is everywhere. But really, it should be very... Uh, such a blessing to us that God is always present. He is always nearby. That's what the scripture teaches us. It teaches that God is nearby. And the scripture tells us we just have to call out to him. And he is there to help us. And that should be of great comfort to us as believers that, that God is nearby. Now I'm hitting these quick, folks. Obviously we could talk about each one of these a whole lot longer, but that's not the purpose of this study is just to give a quick overview of a few of these things. So, <coughs> so I'm hitting them pretty quick today. But, but we understand God is all-powerful. God is all-present, everywhere present. And then number three, God's omniscience. God's omniscience. God knows everything. What does that mean? That means God knows all things that are actual and all possibilities. So in other words... I come to make a decision and God already knows the possible decisions I can make and he already knows the outcome of those decisions. He knows everything. So I got a yes or no decision. God, God knows the possibility of both those answers and God also knows how I'm going to answer because he knows all. He knows everything. He knows all the possibilities and all the actual decisions. It's interesting when you think about it, God never discovers anything. God never is surprised by anything. God is never shocked by anything. Nothing amazes God because he already knows it all. It also means that he doesn't know anything else more than anything else. He knows it all the same. But we have to understand. So think, think, think about that, though, folks. God, God, God is not shocked or surprised or taken aback <coughs> excuse me, by anything. So when something that we consider traumatic happens in our life, God is not shocked by that. God is not fretting over that. Because God knew it was going to happen. And, and, we, and we have to under, understand that because, because we, that's not how we respond, is it? When something traumatic happens, we fret over it. We worry about it. We get anxious about it. Why? Because 
because we didn't know it was going to happen. But see, God is not shocked by those things, and, and he's not taken aback. There's nothing that stresses him. He doesn't sit in heaven wringing his hands going, oh, I hope everything in America is going to work out the way I need it to. That's not what God is doing, folks. God is not, surpri- God, God is not surprised by the things that are going on in our country today. They're not a shock to him. They're shocking to us. I mean, I, th- I, think, I think back to, to when I was a kid. I mean, I grew up, I, I, I was born in the 60s, so I grew up, you know, my childhood years in the 70s. If you had told me some of the stuff we would be talking about today in our country, I would have been stunned. I mean, absolutely stunned, even as a kid, to think of some of the things we're dealing with today in our country. But God's not wringing his hands over those things. God's not shocked by those things. He knows, and he knew that they were going to happen. And so we have to, we have to understand that. Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 15. <clears throat> Acts chapter 15 and verse uh, 18. Acts 15 and verse 18 says this. It says, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world of the world so God knows we can turn over to first John chapter 3 first John chapter 3 and verse uh, 20 first John 3 and verse 20 says this it says for if our heart condemn us God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things see God already knows folks you can go to Psalm 1 first Psalm Psalm 1 in verse uh, Psalm 1 and verse 6. Psalm 1 and verse 6. It says, For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. God knows. And we can look at Scripture upon Scripture upon Scripture. There's a lot of Scripture that talks about God knows. But basically the fact that we have to understand is God's omniscience. God knows everything. (coughs) With that... God not only knows facts, folks, but he knows motive. He knows motive. Why do you do the things that you do? Nobody else may know, but God knows. You may think, I'm the only one that knows why I do the things I do. My motives are are a secret to me and me only. But God knows your motives. God knows all. So he knows why we do the things we do. He knows when we think the thoughts we think. Remember, oh, you look through Scripture, and God, oh, at times in Scripture, tells people what they were thinking in their mind when they didn't verbalize it, and then they're shocked <laughs> because God knew what they were thinking in their mind. Why, how does God know that? Because God is all-knowing. So he knows our thoughts. Now, that's scary, folks. That can be really scary when you think about it. God, God knows my thoughts. God knows the things I say in my mind that never verbalize on my tongue. God knows those things. And so it, ju- it just shows us the, imp- the importance. You know, I think God's, God's uh, omnipresence, the fact that God is everywhere, and then his omniscience, the fact that he knows all, I think it, it just it helps us as believers to understand that, that we have to be very careful in our walk because God knows what's taking place, even if it's not verbalized. He knows what's going on in our mind. But these are four basic just uh, perfections of God, love, omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience. The next time we meet uh, to take, take on this uh, study, 
we'll cover some more of the, um, of the basic perfections of God. Now listen, we're not going to be able to do an, 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 a completely exhaustive list because we would be here forever. <laughs> but, uh, but what we consider many of the basic perfections of God, those are the ones we're going to be looking at, and we'll look at some more of those the next time that we meet. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and we will be dismissed. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for the time we have together today, Lord. Just uh, bless us as we go home. Give us safety as we travel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.